Yeah, it's like I started seeing the stuff about it, and it's just like, oh, a bunch of grocery workers are going to go on strike. That's cool. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, grocery workers get fucked over. And then, like, the same week that the strike starts, the they put out that, like, report that's just like, oh, yeah, by the way, Kroger's wealth is built on skulls, basically. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, very, very cool. Um, this is extremely fucked. Fuck Kroger. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't know that they uh operated stores that weren't just Kroger's as well. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. That I was thought- news to me in this yeah. in that particular story. But I don't want to get too uh into no. that discussion as it's like the third or fourth story. Yeah, no, no, I mean I, know. I just I just had an like when I saw that I was like, I should have known. Right, because like we have Family Fair here in West Michigan, but oh Family Fair is Do you see them trying company. to recruit in the groups? They're they're like putting What's out Family job. Fair. It's just Family a- Fair is a Spartan brand grocery store, so there are grocery stores all over Michigan and the oh. Great Lakes area that are uh, they they have different names in different parts of the state, but they're all owned by the Spartan company. Yeah, uh, no, they're they're um, recruiting right now is really fucking desperate. They're like taking photos of very pristine looking stores and like we're hiring with like <laughs> seriously almost no information. And you you ask them how much that they're they're paying. There's no response. You like there is no actual engagement with any of the questions of people possibly even that are going to work there, which to me means they're mm. pay- paying almost nothing. This is the same place where um i tried to tip someone early in the pandemic and they're like oh no we're not allowed to accept tips and i said well you should anyway sure and they said well i'm not going to mm. oh jeez, yeah. like, that yeah. sounds like well, a wonderful work environment yeah a lot of these places are really ran like the military and i i mean family fair is a like a garbage place to shop it's overpriced it's not a good selection b they're competing with the other two big name grocery stores in town like walmart and target and shit aside they're competing with Meyer and Aldi. Aldi pays much more competitive wages. They're not a great company, but they pay much more competitive wages than most grocery stores. And, and Meyer's fucking and they unionized. let people and Aldi lets people sit. Yeah, Aldi lets people sit. And Meyer's fucking unionized. So that's yeah. n- you know, no credit to Meyer, all credit to the Meyer employees, but like it's just a better gig than Family Fair. Yeah, that's like around here, you've got like Stop and Shop is like your your general grocery brand, like or but which like they're fine. They're basically your platonic ideal of this is a basic supermarket, mm-hmm. but I tend to go there cause like they're UFCW. So like, right. and they're like the only chain around here is the alternative is mostly like either there are also like little local like places that I will try and check out, but mm-hmm. like it is nice to go to the union shop. Yeah, I just go to Aldi to save money, and then if I need anything to get from like a fancier grocery store, I go to Meyer because they're union. And then if I need anything more than that, I try to find it at like a local. You know, we have like a Southeast Asian market, we have like an Indian market. I think we even have an African market somewhere that I haven't checked out yet. Nice. Um, but there's uh, uh, there's a regional chain of Mexican supermarkets mm-hmm. um, owned by a, a company called La Perla. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's like, if you go to like in our area, the La Favorita, Mi Favorita, those are all owned by La, per- La Perla. Oh, so they're doing the Spartan brand uh, kind of model as well. That's interesting. They're like, we'll open... Uh, you know, supermercados or like Mexican grocery stores or whatever they call them in different regions of Michigan and we'll call them different things. So you don't realize they're all just 
us. Well, yeah. I I mean, it also could just be the other way where like one of them got kind of big and then bought mm-hmm. the other ones and just kept the name because they wanted the the brand recognition. That could make yeah. that that would make a lot of sense as well. Yeah, I don't know a ton about that particular history. I just uh, have recently found out the uh, the grocery that it, that those supermercados are uh, are a chain. Oh huh. yeah, yeah, I had no idea. Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody, your number one grocery store review show. That's right. Uh, Let us know about unionized or otherwise interesting grocery stores in your area in the Discord. Uh, If you're not already in the Discord, get in there. And uh, if you support us on Patreon, thank you so much for any money that you throw our way. It really goes a long way towards helping the show keep going. And uh, today, I guess, unless we have any other grocery store stuff to chat about. <laughs> well, we, we've got the, the next hour we will be spending debating what qualifies and what does not qualify as a bodega. Uh, the right. most, <laughs> most important debate that we could be having. <laughs> right. right. If, it sells, if it sells prepared food, it's a bodega. That's my rule. <laughs> But yeah, no, our, our, our first story this week is, is kind of, I, it's not technically a follow-up, but I'm classing it as one because it's, it's basically in the same line as, as our main story from last week of mm-hmm. continuing to cover what's been going on with schools and the incredibly unsafe working conditions and learning conditions or lack thereof uh, across the country as Omicron continues to drive case numbers through the roof. Because we reported last week, obviously, on some pushback on the insane uh, pro-virus positions of the U.S. federal and, and local governments in, in Chicago. But this week, we saw some more pushback where we in Oakland, in California, we had a sick out and car caravan where 500 teachers at the Oakland Unified School District uh, basically took the day off with a, with an unauthorized one-day strike to uh, protest the fact that they forced everyone to go back in person and to demand uh, new safety measures, including two weeks of remote learning, and that the school district distribute N95 masks to teachers once they go back. So that they, uh, you know, are not just relying on cloth masks that don't really do anything. At yeah, this we point. love a good uh, we good we love a good effective unauthorized strike. And That's right. That, that we we hold very strongly here. Yeah. Well, these these teachers had repeatedly asked their uh, teachers association, the Oakland Teachers Association, uh, if they could do something more than politely ask the school to do yes. better. Uh, and they kept getting like, no, you can't. So they just did the unauthorized strike. They worked outside of the normal channels, and then. The Oakland School Director of Communications, John Sasaki, called the sick out illegal, which is the <laughs> funniest shit in the world. <laughs> yeah, like these teachers are criminals. They're stealing learning or something <laughs> like that. I mean, I love that too, because like illegal can be used like not to reference like federal and state and municipal law and stuff, yeah. like an illegal move in a chess game or whatever. But I love it when people like try to conversationally stretch the boundary of a word like that and then still have the implication that what they mean is like you broke the law (laughs) it's very weak (laughs) yeah like you you didn't go to work you broke the rules (laughs) (laughs) but yeah 
I mean, like that is, I think that maybe that uh, we could make a little point about that in that the, that sort of language is, it's more like the teachers technically forego some protections under mm-hmm. the contract right. when doing yes. an action like that. But but through their collective action, they have protected themselves in in that kind of solidarity form, therefore making it safer. Uh, and so, yes. you know, knowing that that even if you're outside of like the specific contract or what uh, what is determined as protected activity, and, and there are ways to get to, to do that without actual repercussions coming down. Because I don't think we're going to be seeing any of these teachers getting fired for this particular action. No, no I mean it's a it's a it's a risk reward assessment, right? It's like. Uh, and, and it's also why you don't want to have any like language in your union charter or association charter, or whatever that, that lets a couple of people tell you like you can't strike because it's like, yeah, I guess if we don't follow what the union says to do, we give up some protections, but doing things that we weren't supposed to do is how we got those protections 99% of the time. Right. So it's like, you know, are you really giving them up or are you risking a little bit for the chance to have like a lot more safety and security and pay and you know, all the things that these teachers are asking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in addition to these 500 teachers that, that went on, you know, one day strike to demand safer learning conditions, we also have students stepping up and, and, and pushing back on this whole notion because there's been this, there's been this attempt by, you know, members of the Biden administration and a lot of, you know, rich liberals on Twitter and and in various media positions to essentially try to gaslight the U S population into thinking that students would rather, you know, go into dangerous schools and watch their friends and teachers get sick and die and disappear. than go back to remote learning. That remote learning is so bad for kids and so detrimental to their mental health that it's somehow worse than, you know, getting COVID right. <laughs> or spreading COVID to a parent or, you know, friend who then gets it very bad and potentially dies. And so, uh, thankfully, you know, the actual students know that that's bullshit. And so in the same district in Oakland, over 250 students have launched a petition demanding in the same vein as the the teachers that they shift to remote learning during the Mm -hmm. surge. And that in order to come back, they provide KN95 masks to all the students. They do twice weekly PCR and and rapid tests for every student and worker and that they make available outdoor eating spaces because that's another one of the things that makes the school environment so dangerous is that even if they have, you know, mask mandates, even if they have vaccine mandates, which again are difficult to do for kids who have only had a much shorter period where vaccines have been uh, available, mm-hmm. there's still the question of lunchtime or even sometimes, you know, breakfast where kids are all masked in a cafeteria eating, which requires you to remove your mask. And so, like, obviously, thankfully, because, you know, they're in California, this is actually an option. It's be a little more difficult in, you know, since we're in the winter in the in the northern half of the country. But, like, the, those are all, like, very smart demands to make schools safe. And so they put out this petition saying, quote, the district has one week starting Monday, January 10th to meet our demands. If our demands are not met by Monday, January 17th, students will strike starting on Tuesday by not going to school. Friday, January 21st, we will strike outside the uh, Oakland Unified School District building and it will last until our demands are met. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's really dope to like see this, you know, sort of 
like solidarity between the, the teachers and the students, the people who are constantly being told are the ones who need to go back to school by the members of the, the go- like the, you know, the government pushing these policies who are actually coming back and saying, no, <laughs> we need to, you know, not be fucking thrown into a plague pit right, right. now. Well, it's like everybody who works in that building and students work, you know, they work mm-hmm. on their schoolwork, uh, knows that like, it's not fucking safe to be in these buildings whatsoever. But of course, like administrators, uh, and you know, principals or superintendents or whatever, their interests are aligned with like the kind of like, it's like common knowledge supposedly that like in, in school learning works so much better. And it's such a travesty for our children to not be in school, but it's really like another way of saying like, Hey, these parents all need to go back to work Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we can't have them at home cooking meals for their children and realizing how nice it is to not be at work, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I think that one of the um, lessons that we can also take from this is that children organizing do have power Mm -hmm. and and educating kids in struggle and in actually standing up for what is right is a very, very important thing. Not only just because like these are very dangerous situations that kids should be able to protect themselves with, but also just in the more long term of organizing education in general. And so taking this time to, to point these stories out to your kids kids or or like give them some sort of uh encouragement that they are allowed to stand up for themselves collectively is is a really good lesson that i think parents should be taking right now Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely 100 percent. and there's a quote where one of the students organizing the petition uh, had been talking to owen higgins uh, on his Substack. this is nikayla dean who's a sophomore at met west high school in oakland who said we took matters into our own hands not just with the strike but some people are trying to raise money to go get kn95 masks and for weekly testing and so there's there's two things from that though that i'm like one that's fantastic. Like the fact that the kids are organizing this, it's, it's one of those things where like to what you were saying, Lena, like there's this perception, I think that kids have no agency and that like they could never put something like this together. They need adult supervision to do that. And it's like, well, no, clearly they do not like they are actual human beings with the, who are, with sentience who can figure this stuff out. But the other thing is like, that is just such an indictment of the U S response to COVID that like, kids are having to organize basically like fundraisers just to mm-hmm. get access to the bare minimum of, of masks that actually protect you from the virus and testing to make, to find out if you have it instead of that being provided free shit that should be provided by the government. But I mean, the, you could take that logic all the way and just be like the government should just mandate that all schools do remote learning Right. And then all of this <laughs> would be avoided in the first place. So it's like, it, th- this is the problem with like, COVID related demands is that like you always, even when you make a huge ask, you're still asking for table scraps because like this shit should have been fixed, you know, long time ago at a much higher level than you're able to operate at. Unfortunately, I'm not that I want to discourage anybody from, you know, like what these kids are doing is incredible. And like, you know, it's amazing to see them do that, especially because when I was their age, I never would have thought like if my friends were like, we're going to do this, I would have been like, I don't know. I don't think this is going to work. Uh, I was always told that like, when you're a student, you just, you answer to the people who are in charge. And it's cool to see kids realizing that's not really the case. 
Well, and the situation that we're in is incredibly dire. I mean, like, mm-hmm. to the idea, like, as Dan was mentioning, the fact that the kids have to do this sort of thing is appalling. It's absolutely right. mm-hmm. awful. It doesn't change the fact that it does need to be that way. Uh, I mean, it really goes to some of the, like, experiences that I know that people have had as, like, parentified children who basically mm-hmm. have to go and, and, and in their daily lives take care of, of very important things that adults should be doing. Yeah. And, like that sort of thing exists on a more minutia than than covid but when it expands to such a wider struggle like healthcare struggle there is a lot of of reasons why the kids should be organizing why Mm -hmm. uh like and you know it's not that the kids and dan was mentioning that uh you know kids can't uh or it might seem that kids can't do this alone but they can but i do think that they're probably getting pointers from adults they're probably having some guidance from people who are like well-minded people that that know about this sort of thing and it's again why i encourage parents and teachers to go and engage with children and and teach them this sort of struggle because it, like though we don't want it to ha- be happening there isn't another choice yeah no it, it, exactly and like i think though to kind of the to to flip like what you were talking about a little bit there john about how like looking at these the struggles that we have to do just for these incredibly low minimums like mm-hmm. to to get what should be obvious i think is actually part of the reason why we see so much pushback from the state on it, which is that the COVID just makes the contradictions of capitalism so much more stark and, and obvious. It's like you, you point out to regular people and there, that's the other thing about this is there's, there's been all this messaging. Oh, well, parents want the kids in school. They don't want remote learning. And there was a recent poll that was just put out this week. And it showed that like by far parents who make 50 K or less, are more willing to accept remote learning mm-hmm. than other than parents who make more money, which I think just tells you like exactly like where this messaging is coming from, which is right. the people who are least likely to have access to sick time. The people yeah. who are like least likely to be able to deal with the disruption are the most likely to be like, to support their kids uh, in this sort of thing. And to understand that it's like, it's more important that they not be sent into these environments where they could get this potentially, you know, life-threatening and debilitating disease. Well, I mean, capitalism just kind of selects for that as well, right? Because it's like, if you really care about your family, you're not a work psycho. And (laughs) unfortunately, the American economy loves rewarding work psychos. The crazier and more aggressive and hostile you are at work, sometimes the more effective and further you will rise. But on the note of gains for students and student organizing, uh, we wanted to follow up with uh, the student workers of Columbia who have reached a tentative agreement with uh, Columbia School, which is really cool because they've been on strike for 10 weeks, which is a really long fucking time. I know we talk about strikes that go on for like three months or whatever, however many years sometimes, but think about being on a, on a picket line for 10 weeks in winter. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and, And the other thing with this is I think that it's important to point out that this is the first contract for the Mm -hmm. student workers of Columbia who have been organizing around this for years now. There's like our, our, our guest on the interview that we did uh, a few weeks ago with, with Charlie from the student workers, like who, who really laid out the long term process that this has been for like, cause there is the 10 week strike that they've, that this is finally, you know, looking to resolve, but it's, this is like the culmination of years and years of organizing. And Mm -hmm. it, 
seems like from everything that I like I've read about the contract and, and Charlie was, was nice enough to, you know, pop in the discord and, and talk to us about it a little bit. It, it seems like, you know, sticking it out that long, uh, having a good, strong st- solidarity strategy of reaching out to other unions, reaching out mm-hmm. to faculty, reaching out to the undergrads has paid off because the, the new proposed contract, it's a, it's a four year deal. It includes raises across the board for all student workers, including 30% pay boosts for the lowest paid hourly workers. It includes dental coverage that they didn't have before. It includes childcare stipends, which was a big thing that a, a lot of folks were fighting for. And two of the really big critical demands that Columbia had, had dug their feet in like multiple times saying they were never going to do full neutral third party arbitration for cases of harassment and discrimination and total recognition for all student workers, which is the other Hell thing yeah. because they were really trying to limit what counted in the union shop and really like have a cutoff point for like the number of hours worked and, or like if you were at a certain level on whether you would count in the union and, and through, you know, standing together and fighting for the, these 10 weeks and really for the, over the last several years, they were able to win that in the, in this tentative agreement. And so I think that like, you know, that's a, those are big victories. Yeah, I think I really encourage people to go back and listen to that interview if they haven't gotten the chance, especially because it really outlines the way in which the workers put the effort in to a rank and file movement and got away from mm-hmm. um, kind of more of a top down uh, model of unionization and the exact process that they went through in that particular case. And and it's inc- it's very, very good interview. Yeah, and and actually a little bit to what you were talking about, we were talking about in the last story with the the you know difficulties of dealing with overly restrictive contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that Charlie told us about the the tentative agreement was you know one of the things that you always have uh, trade offs over for struggling for contracts in in the U.S. is open shop or closed shop. And obviously in general for a union, you prefer a closed shop. But and and this is a technically it's an open shop agreement, but. It doesn't include a clause in the contract banning sympathy strikes, which is important when you consider that there are other contracts at the university expiring this year, which means that because there isn't such a restriction, there's nothing, you know, legally preventing the workers in the student workers of Columbia from striking, you know, in solidarity with other folks at Columbia. And so like that, you know, as we, as we've seen, whenever pretty much like, there's a reason solidarity strikes are banned so often is because they are one of the most effective tools that we have. And so I think that they're probably making a a pretty good trade off there to make sure that they don't have, you know, one of those contracts that turns into the sort of thing that you sign it. And then you forget about the, the union struggle until the contract's over with like this. and this uh, should keep people engaged. The the notion that it's banned is this is similar to what we were talking about in the first story is like technically they could still do it, but they do forego right. protections. And right. and and with this uh thing, this clause not, you know, put in there, they actually still will have protections uh under their contract while mm-hmm. out there striking in solidarity, which is a huge win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, obviously, I just uh, got to put that the asterisk on any story about a tentative agreement. It's a tentative agreement. There's there's still there's a 15 day discussion period and then a seven day ratification period. So and we we should know by the end of this month, it, the current schedule is for there to be the final results of voting on it by the whole membership by January 28th. So uh, the 
there have been incidences in the past where tentative agreements have been voted down. But as we talked about on that interview, that was when they had a bit of more of a bureaucratic process and have since developed more of a rank and file setup that has a lot more of member engagement in the negotiating process. So, you know, from all the media I've seen about it, I think it's probably likely that it'll pass, but we've got to always put in there that caveat that it's like, a tentative agreement is not a contract until it's ratified by the whole membership. Right. That's <laughs> exactly. right. And so our next story this week, we're going to uh, go outside the U.S. for this one to South Africa, where their biggest dairy company, uh, Clover, the workers there have been on strike since November 22nd. This is over 5,000 workers. Uh, after the company was bought by an Israeli firm, which immediately slashed tons of jobs. Wow. And I mean, how many times have we seen this sort of thing where a giant, you know, con- corporation, usually a U.S. one, comes in somewhere and says, hey, we're going to buy up this company and we're going to make it better. And then by make it better, they mean we're going to slash jobs. Yeah. I love when a company in a current apartheid state buys a company in a mm-hmm. recently former apartheid state, still kind of basically yeah. an apartheid state. Yeah. And so the company that, that bought Clover, Milco, as part of the terms of the agreement of the acquisition, because, you know, these sorts of major corporate mergers like have to go through some sort of a regulatory body to mm-hmm. get approved. They said, oh, we're going to create 500 new jobs and have instead cut over 2000 jobs. Of course. And uh, Milco, this company is majority owned by the Israeli Central Bottling Company, which is based in, uh, you know, illegally occupied settlements in Palestine. So, mm-hmm. yeah, as you were saying, like, it's kind of adding, you know, a level of uh, really nasty, like, political angle to this whole story. And, like, Milco is also, they're not done slashing jobs. They're planning to lay off another thousand workers and close several branches in order in the, in the pursuit of efficiency. Right. And I mean, specifically to move like the move the or the um, companies themselves, the production levels more to like coastal areas. Right. And to basically like the same way that we see the uh, desertification of small um, towns and stuff like that here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that, that exact kind of notion because there is more profit to be made if they move the places over to the uh, to the coastal areas. But then they are just leaving all of these people in these more rural areas with nothing and with no compensation for it. And they're just saying, well, too bad. That's the market. Right. Yeah. And. They've also placed this big series of demands on the workers. They are, they are trying to force the workers to accept wage cuts of 20%, uh, a reduction in the number of workers for loading the delivery vans and, and cutting the number of people from unloading goods from two to one compressing working hours from a normal like schedule to 12 hour days and six day weeks uh, they also want to cut the number of paid holidays in half and cut the transportation allowance that night shift workers used to get by 50%. Have you ever heard of uh, labor intensification? Because <laughs> this seems like a laundry list of exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Well, I mean, these companies, they come in, the, in into an industry and they're like, we want to grow 
this industry. And what that really means is like, we want to absolutely maximize the amount of money that we can yoink out of it. And at right. a given second we want to squeeze the workers for every bit of juice that they'll put out. Yeah. They yeah. always say it's going to mean more jobs, but then they run the numbers and they're like, Hmm, less jobs makes us more money. And then they do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you'll see like this, like companies, I don't, I don't know that if they did that in this case, but there's so many of these, you'll see like a bait and switch where it'll mm-hmm. be like, we created 500 jobs. We did create 500 jobs. We just also cut 3000 jobs. Right. <laughs> it's right. just like, you well, know, they're probably going to pull that line. As soon as they move some of their yeah. production to the coasts, they're going to open up a new thing and be like, oh, look at these 500 jobs that we promised we delivered on them. Yeah. Right. And then there will always be the excuse of, oh, well, these other places, they weren't viable or they weren't profitable, yada, 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 yada. But Thankfully, you know, the, the workers in South Africa are not just, you know, taking this lying down. There are two major unions leading a, a, the, the strike, basically, let's see, now um, two months long at this point, the General Industries Workers Union of South Africa and the Food and Allied Workers Union, who have been, you know, they, they've got 5,000 members who have downed tools for two months, and they have been meeting with the government because since it's a foreign company that that purchased Clover, the, the government is, you know, has that regulatory arm on whether it approves the merger. And so they've been basically demanding, they're like, you have to make them not do this. This is incredibly fucked up there. And and basically pointing out they are clearly in breach of contract. But the government has been using all sorts of legal technicalities to say, oh no, uh, we don't, have, we shouldn't be involved in this. This is a dispute between you and the company. Leave us out of this. We can't right. do anything. Well, and I, I love the energy from this guy, Mametelwe uh, Sebe. I hope I'm saying that somewhat close to correctly, uh, where he says like, they closed down two factories in Western Cape last year. This year they are closing about four. Within two years of taking over, they have effectively closed six plants as, and they're relocating operations from inland to the the coastal areas and this is the best part where he just says the commission should not be bogged down with technicalities the issue is foreign capital came into this country claiming it wants to invest to grow clover instead six factories have been closed and over a thousand jobs are being shed that cannot be a positive investment but a destructive one this has to be investigated in the spirit of public interest which all the competition laws speak about which i'm not familiar with south africa's competition laws but if if it allows the government to uh, see, this is the kind of thing that we w- probably wouldn't have in the United States because we are the companies showing up in your country <laughs> right. doing this. But if you're a smaller economy, I can see why you would have laws like this, which is like, Hey, a, a big ass, com- uh, a big ass company can't just show up here and start closing down shops and stuff and like, and doing all this shit. Yeah. Like the FTC, um, can do that stuff here in the U S like right. they, they, they will, they've sometimes you'll see like, for instance, that the only time I'm really used to ever seeing them flex that power is if say a Chinese company wants to buy something in the U S right. and the U S is like, uh, no, <laughs> it would have to, it would have to be China, right? Like who else <laughs> is a big enough economy to do that to us? Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's, there's some level of protectionism in, in most of these setups, but yeah, for the most part, those sorts of commissions they're you know, they're working for the same class that is, right. that is running all of these mergers and the, and the, that stand to profit from them. So they very rarely actually do anything. And, and, I, yeah, I love the way that, that Sebe, who's the, the president of the, the General Industries Workers Union of South Africa, lays all that out just 
like saying it right out. This is foreign capital coming in here and trying to make a bunch of money by destroying a bunch of jobs. And it's not in the people's interest and show we shouldn't allow it. Right. But I also love the fact that these striking workers have also been coordinating with Palestinian solidarity groups mm-hmm. with BDS orgs in the area. And they, they've now switched from their initial demands of just, you know, roll back the merger or like force them to comply with the contract to, no, no, no. This is fucked. They are destroying the the, the biggest dairy company in in the country. Uh, we now want the government to expropriate Clover and put it under the management of the workers as cooperatives. That's, That's fucking right. gnarly. That's so fucking sick. Uh, and I'm not familiar enough with South Africa. Like, are are there like l- legal channels for this to possibly actually happen if the workers demonstrated enough? you know, solidarity power, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know South Africa's laws, but just, you know, from the, the, the state always, right. Ultimately, theoretically has that power. Sure. And, sure. But considering, I mean, while the, you know, the current state in South Africa is certainly a massive improvement from the old apartheid state, it mm-hmm. is still, you know, a bourgeois democracy. There is still like a capitalist ruling class there. And so I find it rather unlikely that the state will willingly accede to their demands, but the unions are not just, you know, petitioning the state and saying, Hey, please do what we're saying. Like they had a mass meeting this week where they, in one of the articles I read from, this is all coming out of people's dispatch mm-hmm. where they've like interviewed them and, and, and been covering this where they've been calling like, escalation after escalation after escalation. And now they say they're going to be rolling out a, a quote, a program of rolling mass action against Clover rolling like, basically, mass action. Yeah, <laughs> that's badass. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I the everything that I've seen coming out of both of these unions has just been like the hugest energy. And it's, it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air from some of the other, you know, unions that we're used to covering sometimes to see these like direct demands that are just like, look, this situation is fucked. Like they're firing all these people. This is a vital industry. Like, you know, it's a dairy company. It makes food that people need. This should just be part of the government and we should run it because we're the workers and we know what we're doing. And if you don't accede to at least the demands to, you know, roll back the firings, we're going to just keep escalating this strike until we get what we need. Right. Well, and it's interesting because it seems like it happens a lot in like, obviously places where the contradictions are very heightened, but also like, especially in agriculture and food production, like this being the dairy industry. And I don't know how big South Africa's dairy industry is, but I do know they were colonized by the Dutch. So I have to imagine it's pretty big. Uh, (laughs) you know, when, when, when you see these strikes, uh, in, in these regions of the economy, they, they come out really strong when they come out, you know, this has echoes of the Indians for the Indian farmers movement all over it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll definitely keep an eye on this and, and, and see how this ends up being resolved, but just, you know, hats off to these workers. Cause I mean, that's like 5,000 workers being on strike mm. for two months, like in such a vital sector. Like that's a, that's a, that's a massive strike. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the beginning of the episode where right. we were <laughs> discussing grocery store workers and the ways that grocery stores in general work in the United States, we're going to be heading over to Colorado where uh, King Supers 
uh, workers are actually going on or have gone on strike, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, I'm, King Supers doesn't sound like a grocery store to me. It sounds like a 90s alternative rock band that would share a bill <laughs> with like Jesus Jones and like Sublime or something. Well, I mean, when I moved to Pittsburgh, I was like, what the fuck's a giant eagle? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I when people told me Giant Eagle was the real name for a grocery store, I was like, wait, I thought that was just something. I thought that was like the fake store from Night in the Woods. No, <laughs> yeah, no. It's unfortunately a very real store, and it is about as fascist as you would think a Giant Eagle would Oof. be. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, they it's, do it's have a bad place. A, there. There is a bunch of unionized shops, but they're not all unionized, mm-hmm. and I think it's like only the places with market district. Them, which mm. is which is actually like a brand name not a not a, a thing right yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they have their market district stores which are different under some other umbrella but we're talking about 8,400 king supers workers that's right uh, in colorado they went on strike on wednesday they they have gone on strike uh in denver boulder parker and colorado springs and uh, like we said at the top of the episode, King Supers is owned by Kroger. And uh, this is the first major grocery strike in Colorado in 25 years, which is a re- really long time to not have a yeah. grocery strike. In a whole state. The whole, yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not just like, oh, the, the Kroger's have not struck in 25. No, it's all grocery stores in Colorado. So this is a really, really unique opportunity for not only these workers, but uh, for people in that area to hold solidarity with these workers mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. we've actually seen uh at least one person in, in the discord who is going out there in solidarity but we're i'm guessing we have a lot more people in colorado who listen so make sure to <laughs> to get out there with the workers but let's go over uh, some more of the details as to why they're even out on strike uh, yeah the, so the normal reasons yeah that's the th- so so we're gonna get into it in a little bit here like the the working conditions faced by the workers for kroger across their entire grocery empire but Specifically, these King Supers workers have have gone on strike there with their you know UFCW UFCW Local Seven, specifically criticizing you know the company for what you would expect for for a lot of these the folks that are that work there they've they've faced insufficient sick leave, which is a mm-hmm. pretty important thing during a fucking pandemic. <laughs> uh, they have faced constant changes in overtime. They have faced the outsourcing of jobs. They have, they have two non-union contractors. They have had all sorts of horrific problems with health and safety conditions. They're facing incredibly low wages. And one of the things that I was reading in one of the articles, a lot of these workers don't even get their, their schedule 24 hours in advance. Oh my God. I've had jobs like that before where they're like, uh, we'll let you know when you're working as soon as we can. And then you get a call on Saturday night at nine and they're like, Hey, can you come in tomorrow at seven? And you're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I can't. Yeah. And then you're fired. Yeah. And the contract that, that King Supers had come to the union with they're, they've been trumpeting all this. Oh, we're going to give these workers all these big weight, big raises. But most workers would receive less than a dollar fifty an hour raise, and like it's gotten like the the union busting at the company has gotten so bad that UFCW has actually filed a lawsuit against King Supers for constantly using contractors to perform what is supposed to be union work, and. We had a quote in here from the president of UFCW Local 7, Kim Cordova, who said, quote, 
The company's last, best, and final offer, in many ways, is worse than its previous offers. Classic. King Supers, despite providing certain information on Monday night, has failed to respond to critical requests and data concerning the wage, health, and safety matters that are central to these negotiations. We strike because it has become clear that this is the only way to get what is fair, just, and equitable for the grocery workers who have risked their lives every day just by showing up to work during the pandemic. And... Like that's, I mean, I think she highlights like a lot of the th- the key things there. And one thing that I w- just from a process perspective that I think is important about this strike is that they're very specifically classifying it as an unfair labor practice strike, which is important right. because, you know, in our lovely labor law system we have in the U.S., if your strike is over unfair labor practices, which in this case they're classifying as the union, as uh, King Supers using non-union workers to perform union work, as well as, you know, uh, efforts to prevent workers from securing a new contract, advancing wages, health, retirement benefits, and not ensuring a safe place for employees to work and customers to shop. So the reason why that matters is that if you are on an unfair labor practice strike, then it is illegal for the company to permanently replace you, as in what Mm. we saw in Kellogg's, where they were on a what's classed as an economic strike, you know, just a normal strike for a new contract, because of America's incredibly pro-business labor laws, you during an economic strike, you are allowed to permanently replace workers. And so that's where like the distinction comes important here. Interesting. Yeah. It's fucking wild. Like the, they only protect your act. You only have protected worker activities if it's non-economic, which is, which is just a total, like, like literally it's all economic. Yeah. And so to get into some of the specifics of the conditions that these folks have been facing, because Cordova added in another statement, grocery workers ensure that our communities have access to food, but they cannot even afford to feed their own families. And she's not exaggerating because these workers face incredibly low wages. There was a report that came out this week from the economic Roundtable that documented specifically the conditions faced by workers at Kroger and its, and its various subsidiaries. They found that two thirds of Kroger's employees are struggling with poverty. 35% struggle to pay rent and are worried about eviction. 25% say they went hungry in the last year and 14% have been homeless. Wow. And like these, again, these are, you know, people with jobs, like, and it, it's, it, it, you know, just had all these shades of the, when we were talking about the hello fresh union with all these people who they're, they have jobs, they're working all the time and they're forced to like live in their cars or, or sleep on somebody's couch because the wages are just so low mm-hmm. that they can't afford to pay for rent. And right. In those same stats, it says that on an, on average, Kroger workers' wages have decreased by twenty two percent over the past twenty years, uh, with a, you know, adjusting for inflation. Yeah, that's a lot of pay cuts <laughs> every single year. You know, like every single time that someone got a ten cent raise, you know that that was really more of a fifty cent pay cut, and they did it for twenty years. Well, wait, but they gave them hazard pay for like two months. Isn't that <laughs> yeah. something? I remember when we used to cover those when that like towards the <laughs> beginning of this show and we're like, oh, and then they did, you know, a dollar or two uh, uh, hazard pay, which they didn't call hazard pay. They called it hero pay. Uh, yeah. And then it was one month, maybe uh, in some cases up to three at most. There yeah, were, got, there was, it never went further than that. I got mine for three weeks. It was, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like, 
over 2000 of these King supers workers have tested positive for COVID over the last two years. So like the, the discussion of like this being a dangerous work environment is, you know, it's not just rhetoric. Like this is basically a quarter of the people that are on strike from this union have gotten COVID at work. There was a, there was an article on liberation news where I saw where they interviewed, they actually went out to the picket lines and talked to some of the folks and they interviewed this, this one woman, uh, Alyssa, who is a worker at the downtown Denver King supers near the, the Colorado Rockies stadium. And she said, quote, I got COVID twice. I'm working six to seven days a week and I'm doing 12 hour days. So I don't see my daughter. I don't cook dinner. I can't do anything at all. Everybody in the meat department at all three stores I've worked at got COVID. Everybody in the deli at two of those stores got COVID. My daughter got COVID twice. Every time I get it, she gets it. She's scared. We're all scared. And like, I think it's, this is why I think it's so important. Like I, this is why I really appreciate when people actually go out and like, it's always good to get the statement from the union president. I, they usually do a good job summing up the demands, but we, you got to hear from the workers specifically because like, that's a horrific story. Mm-hmm. Like that is a, and it's a perfect encapsulation of how companies treat workers in this country is completely disposable. Right. Uh, like you are just a profit producing cog and that, and your only function is to make profit. And if they can save money by not enforcing, you know, mask rules by, by not providing masks, by not providing other forms of PPE to workers, by not, you know, actually asking customers to wear masks and stuff at, at, at and, and trying to, you know, make sure that folks have time off to go get vaccinated. Right. Cause that's another thing. You'll have the fucking Democrats out here shouting about how the rise in cases is all because the pandemic of the unvaccinated and all this shit about how we have to blame the individuals who get sick, except for the fact that unlike their caricature that everybody who's unvaccinated is your, your 50 year old truck rant, Fox news watching like (laughs) racist uncle, actually about half of the unvaccinated are poor black and brown workers, most of whom would get vaccinated if they could get time off from work, if they could knew they could get it for free because a lot of don't have health insurance right right well and it's just like it's it's all a deflection from the fact that like schools and workplaces are where covid spreads period like absolutely period like no there's no other place you go to for eight hours right like for real maybe your parents house once in a while but like or a close friend but like that's it and there aren't 300 people at your close friend's house (laughs) right yeah Exactly. And you don't have all, and and, you know, we have our, our incredibly toxic, like customer culture here in the U S where you have, everybody feels completely entitled to treat any employee, like absolute dog shit. And, and no major company is ever willing to stand up to a customer because the customer is always right. And we want their money. So we, we have to let them do whatever horrible shit they want to do to the workers all the time. Even if it results in, you know, workers getting assaulted, workers getting COVID in some cases, I know we saw places where like, because they didn't have like a strict policy you had where you had, like an obvious mask mandate and you had individual workers trying to impose it where we've seen workers get killed over this shit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because like the companies won't enforce this stuff and the government being owned by those same companies isn't going to do it either. No, yeah, yeah. like for my job, I go to a bunch of different companies every single day and it's like shocking the, the complete sliding scale of like COVID awareness. Yeah. Some places I have to like call ahead, get my temperature checked, do a full check-in, answer questions, all that shit, wear a mask the whole time. And some places you just walk in and everybody is like hugging and high-fiving, no, not a fucking mask <laughs> yeah. in sight. 
you know, and it's just totally case by case. It's like, uh, it, it really depends on what the company, well, and like the staffing thing, like when this woman is like, I I'm working 12 hours at a time getting COVID and giving COVID to my daughter who I never see. It's like when I, I I've gotten like four jobs in rapid succession and I finally found one that isn't either like you only work 15 hours a week or here's a bunch of back to back 12 hour shifts which right. seem to be the two primary modes of American employment yeah. right now. Uh, yeah. And as if the incredibly atrocious conditions that the workers were already facing, wasn't bad enough. Like you have Kroger coming out here in the media talking about, well, the grocery business is a very low, pro- low margin industry. And, and so as much as we, you know, we provide very competitive wages and all this shit, except that Kroger made $4 billion in profits last year, and they spent $1.3 billion of that on stock buybacks, which uh, for folks who like, don't know what, like, stock buybacks are a, a scheme meant to like, artificially goose the stock price of a mm-hmm. company because you're going in there and you're reducing the number of shares on the market so that then the stock price goes up so that then the major stock, ho- the shareholders make more money and they're the ones who elect the board. And so they give the board a bonus for doing that, despite the fact that it doesn't do anything for the company. They could have spent that $1.3 billion on, you know, increased compensation. They could have spent it on, you know, providing masks, providing time off, providing more sick leave, oh any God. of these things that they well, say they can't afford to do. Fucking warehouse safety. You could buy new yeah. forklifts and jitneys and shit. They, and then you, they never do. And then their employees who they're not paying enough to like make rent end up dying because a, a piece of equipment hasn't been uh, properly maintained in 35 years. Yeah. Instead, what they did is they paid their CEO $20 million while you have people out here who, again, two thirds of Kroger's workers and Kroger's the biggest grocery chain in the com- country, two thirds of their employees are suffering with poverty. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they're, you know, saying, Oh, we have a low margin industry and they're just spending all the money on fucking stock buybacks and CEO bonuses. And in this specific strike, if King supers, again, talking about how, Oh, well, you know, our offer for a raise up to $16 an hour is extremely competitive and great. Despite the fact that that $16 an hour raise that they're talking about is only 13 cents above Denver's actual minimum wage. Right. <laughs> and during the strike, they are offering scabs $18 an hour. For the, for the duration of the strike, they're paying for them to come from out of town and stay in hotels. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes paying for rental cars for these scabs. Like, so it's just, the brazen, like lying and the way that they're treating their employees is just so gross. I mean, there, there was another quote from this interview from the picket line where they, they interviewed this, this woman, uh, Tina Myers, who's worked for King super for 32 years, who said, I think it's unfair that they're hiring people at 18 an hour when I only make $19 an hour after 32 years. I feel like I deserve a raise. And yeah, Tina, you do. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. are absolutely right. <laughs> like, 
the the brazenness with which like American companies do this shit is so infuriating. Like just come out here. Oh, well, $16 an hour is very competitive. It's the best we can do. We're in a low margin industry at the exact same time. They're giving these scabs $2 an hour more and spending all this money for room and board. <laughs> what the fuck is a low margin industry? Stop lying. You wouldn't run <laughs> businesses in this industry at this scale. Yeah. If it was a low margin industry, fuck you. <laughs> so anyways, this, this strike is incredibly like it's, it's been very enlightening, at least for me, reading about this, learning about how screwed over uh, these grocery workers are. Mm-hmm. So, and in addition to add insult to injury, another stupid legal twist to this, on Monday, the company filed an unfair labor practice against the union. Oh, wow. <laughs> claiming the union isn't bargaining in good faith. <laughs> <laughs> When just, we just heard that the last best and final offer was worse than the previous offer. Like, I mean, th- that would almost be really funny if Colorado wasn't such a sickly libertarian state that that might actually hold up in their legal system. Yeah. yeah and and oh. so, you know, of course, workers are asking for folks to boycott King Supers for the duration of the strike. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seen some support. I saw from a couple of articles, like uh, there was specifically in the Colorado Sun, they interviewed folks like who are normally King Supers patrons who have said, oh, yeah, no, uh, it's uh, from every from what we've heard. It definitely sounds like, you know, the workers deserve good stuff. We're not going to we're not going to shop there. I mean, obviously, it's difficult to tell from a couple of it, like anecdotal interviews, mm-hmm. but one small piece of what I thought was a little strange news about the announcement of this strike was a couple of the articles I read said some stuff from the union leaders who were saying that the strike is planned to last three weeks, which (laughs) that's not, I'm like, that's not how the strike is supposed to work. Like (laughs) when I read that, I thought that the, the, the couple reasons that might be is a, these people are incredibly precarious. We talked about the conditions that Mm -hmm. they live under and to to encourage the workers to go out on strike, to let them know that, you know, like there is impossibly, you know, a time that they're going to win by, which is the implication if you're from the union. But, uh, then maybe it's also because they expect that the intensification of the strike is going to be popular and they're going to extend the strike though you're right it, to put that number out there initially does kind of give the company uh, a bit of a, a piece of information of this is how much it's going to cost us to outlast the strike right i mean and, it's a little weird but like you said i mean i there's nothing stopping them from just extending the strike at oh, any given point like you can send out a party invitation that says like my party is from 6 to 10 p.m. but everyone knows it's from 6 to question mark <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And and the other thing though that that some of the articles I did see point out was that there are other unionized stores who aren't a part of this strike whose contracts expire during the next 3 weeks. Mm-hmm. So like like you were saying Lena, it is possible that intensification of the strike could spin up that way and actually build the strike even bigger which could, you know, extend it beyond the 3 weeks or potentially force the company to cave. But we do have a uh, strike fund um, for these workers that we are going to put in the show notes. Definitely, like you know, these folks are are already on razor thin margins. So I'm going to donate to that. I definitely recommend anybody who can throw a little bit of money their way. We would uh, you know really appreciate that. And if you're in Colorado, you know, and there's a picket line near you, it, as we say for any of these, like folks, 
like in-person solidarity is some of the best stuff you can do and doesn't cost you anything except your time. And, and it can be some of the, the biggest boost for morale for folks to know that, you know, members of the community are supporting them and, and that they're willing to come out there and stand with them for a couple of hours. So we really encourage folks if you're in Colorado and you, and you have the chance to, to go ahead and do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in our last two stories that we're going to be covering for this episode, we're going to be going into the more artistic industry, and uh, we're first going to start with Image Comics, who actually just won their very first union election in the comic industry, which uh, is surprising, I guess. It's, it's, art art is, how, is notoriously difficult to uh, to unionize, especially small shops that have like kind of progressive uh kind of notions because of reason, one of the reasons why this company was originally kind of started was because they were trying to do better than the big comic brands right <laughs> and and for, i'm not a big comics guy but uh, all of my big comics guy friends have assured me that uh image comics is a far sight better in terms of just quality of material than marvel or dc or any of that crap i don't know archie comics whatever people read (laughs) yeah like i know one of the things they sent out is like saga which is really cool Mm -hmm. i've 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 read that before i mean they 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 published the walking dead which is probably their biggest i would imagine is their biggest property i mean spawn is one of the other big ones yeah let's not sell spawn short when that got turned into a movie in like 1994 (laughs) or 96 it had a soundtrack that was all hard rock and heavy metal bands collab collaborating with DJs and it fucking rips. It's so good. Mid 90s soundtracks are so wild, (laughs) but yeah. So I mean, like to your point, Lena, yeah, it's like image was actually originally founded in 1992. Like you said, to get away from the, the conditions at Marvel and DC and and they reference that in the comics book comic book workers united, Mm -hmm. uh, folks announcing, you know, the, the victory in their union organizing where they said, as with many great union stories, the founding of Image Comics started with a group of people who knew the value of their work and had strong convictions about what they deserved to get out of the industry they loved and helped make possible. And one, I will say just, I didn't put this in the notes, but one thing that was kind of weird about looking at this was because to make it clear, like these are the workers who like work at the image comics HQ. So it's not like the creators, like the, the folks who are are drawing most of this, Mm -hmm. uh, like the, the, are not necessarily like this shop because a lot of this stuff is like independently licensed through and it's, and then it's just published by image. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the people that they interviewed, like one of the original big creators, like who was working there, not that these folks aren't creative, but like, that's like the term they were using for, for the bigger names. Mm -hmm. They were asking him, they're like, well, isn't it weird that image wouldn't just voluntarily recognize this union? Cause you know, you were forming as sort of a, like, a protest against the anti worker sentiments at the big Marvel and DC shops. And they were very much like, well, no, that was a, that was really a, a about creators rights. Not, <laughs> not about unions. I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. We think that we think that the people who write the story should uh, have more power, but we don't think that the people who are in charge of managing an Excel sheet that makes sure it gets published, sh- they don't need an improvement in their lives. It was, it was this very weird, very petite bourgeois response. It, but I mean, it's, no, it, it, I mean, it, it does stink of like of, of self-important artists yes. a little bit for sure. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, these folks that have that have unionized with Comic Book Workers United, they're the folks that edit this stuff, they mm-hmm. do layout, they like get this stuff published on time, they they do all of the background logistics work and, and all this stuff that like make the actual publishing of the comics possible in right. the first place. And and they mentioned that the reason that they started their drive was at the beginning of the pandemic, the, you know, like a lot of other companies, they had folks who got laid off. But then when things picked back up, those folks didn't get hired again. And they mm. said they, they had another quote in here from from the union that said an overwhelming number of people struggling through COVID, assuming they were lucky enough to remain employed, were suddenly expected to do much more with much less. This placed an undue burden on us during an already chaotic time. And we believe our creators suffered the effects of this as well. And I mean, how many places have we seen do this exact same thing where they've, they've used the, the excuse of the pandemic to further downsize their force. And, and like you were, you were alluding to at the beginning of the episode, like Lena, like it, labor intensification, like even in the comics industry, even in one of these places where, Oh, you should just feel lucky to work there. <laughs> right. I, I don't even know. You know? Yeah. I mean, we joke, but at that phrase, that I, would, I, yeah. I, I wish I never heard those fucking words ever again in my life. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, and it's like, we have this idea that just because people are like, mavericks in the comics industry means that they're yeah. going to be sympathetic to like class struggle or whatever, even though mavericks in the comic industry have been some of the most insane douchebags in the world, like Doug Tenapel, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they were organizing this drive. They, they had a list of nine primary goals. They were aiming at salary transparency, worker involvement in decision-making, better career mobility, COVID protections, including remote work, improved diversity in hiring, and as we already referenced, increasing hiring to reduce overwork. And so, you know, now that their, their drive has been successful, they, they, they thanked, you know, a bunch of the folks that had inspired them. Like they said, they specifically mentioned workers at IATSE, at CWA, and the recent like set of, of media drives it, organized by the Writers Guild of America. And they're also said that they're hoping that, you know, now that they've broken through as the first unionized shop in the comics industry, that more shops probably starting at smaller spots, but you know, maybe eventually even at Marvel and DC, we'll, we'll start to follow suit. Yeah, we hope so. But, uh, in a similar story, Mm -hmm. uh, we have a classic animation, uh, studio Titmouse, which you may, uh, know from, uh, Uh, you, you might know them from the chirp. (laughs) Chirp. That's what it was. was Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, they actually have, uh, unionized with the animation guild and, uh, they are the first animation studio to be represented by this union outside of California. Uh, these are, uh, New York, uh, animators, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, they have done, you know, little projects like Venture Brothers, (laughs) uh, Metalocalypse, Mm -hmm. Star Trek, you know, like, you know, just things no one's heard of. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not very big uh, show. So, yeah, like this is a bargaining unit of 113 workers uh, that do all kinds of things like 3D modeling, direction, storyboard artistry and prop design. And they're all going to be represented by IATSE Local 839 now, which is very, very fucking cool. Uh, and I saw a lot of people rejoicing about this. There was a very uh, personal Facebook post from one of the people uh, in the union uh, who was just overjoyed that after 15 years of working in the industry, they could finally be represented by a union. Um, it, it's just really fucking cool to see. And, you know, 
I, I'm not a vote with your dollars kind of guy, but it does make me feel a little bit better about enjoying my favorite classic Adult Swim shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that like go before I was looking at this story that like animation can be is is kind of an insular industry, mm-hmm. but just the fact that like all of the unionized animation workers were only basically in LA and that they mm-hmm. hadn't been able to establish a single unionized shop outside of there is wild and not great. And so this is definitely very encouraging that now, you know, there's, there's an official and, and not just like a small unionized shop, like Tim mouse is a, is, is a big name in yeah. animation. So they're very like, recognizable. They have, they have a lot of name recognition. And I mean, like, you know, 113 workers isn't a ton, yeah. but it's a pretty good chunk of workers to get unionized. And I, you know, especially with them being, very recognizably affiliated with adult swim. It really makes me hope that like this might pave the way for some unionization campaigns in places like Atlanta as well. We're going to nationalize Viacom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah. Broadcasting in general. We're coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love this quote from uh, Gray Rothy, who is a member of their organizing committee who had said unionization felt unattainable until I saw the unstoppable force that is this organizing effort. I feel a deep sense of gratitude and relief knowing that this means the current and future generations of New York artists and production staff will have their voices heard. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And you know, that's, that's, that's the great thing about these sorts of solidarity efforts. It's like it, it's, it's one of those things where it seems impossible until you make it happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, you know, the stuff we've seen with the Starbucks union with all sorts of these stuff, and then it just, it becomes infectious. And so I really hope that we, we start seeing this, like, like you were saying, spread out to maybe like Atlanta or, or other places mm-hmm. around the country. And yeah. so that's really the, the kind of feel good energy. These, these struggles, they, they can seem really, really intimidating, but I just remember during my unionization push that the day of the election that the organizer was confiding in me because I was, you know, one of the people that he could, you know, s- say some of these things to. He's like, you know, I'm very nervous. I, I don't, he didn't actually have a lot of confidence in our election. We had, I think it was like, uh, like, nine or like 10 of 13 or 10, 10 of 14. Like it was not like just a, a one vote differentiation on the right. union. Like we, we won it handily. I mean, you like better you can, than like, two thirds. Yeah. Yeah. Be, being worried is reasonable, but you can win. Well, it, and, like, it seems and you it, can believe that you can win. It, it seems impossible until everybody actually casts their vote. And it's like, well, yeah, we all voted for the union. <laughs> I would love more representation in my workplace. Right. But like, I don't know. Maybe that's, it's just like the, the hegemony of the workplace, right? Your boss does everything in their power every second of the day to make you believe you can't demand better working conditions from them. So it seems impossible until you do it. Yeah. So it's, it's just great to see this, you know, this sort of thing spread to all sorts of places, image comics, Starbucks, Titmouse. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's good to see this sort of thing spread. And that's the sort of energy that we want to carry over into the meme review. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> into the meme review. Uh, first one is a stonks. First one, is, first one is not funny. First one is a downer. <laughs> but the arrow's pointing it, up. It's it says stonks. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it, it, it's COVID times. Black humor is all we got. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
We're all we're all Kurt Vonnegut now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is just you know. It's a. I think it's a pretty solid encapsulation of the Biden COVID plan. Oh yeah, it's, it definitely is. It's just death. It's just death, and he's standing right there next to the stonks going up. We love to see the big line go up, don't we, folks? At any cost. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I'm, uh, I'm I'm waiting for somebody to just start overlaying a graph of like the graph of the death rate and the graph of like the S and P five hundred and watching them just like track with each other. Look, they oh, had an inverse God. correlation at first, but now they're perfectly in sync. <laughs> wow. Aren't you so glad the economy recovered? Yeah, I mean that that's like uh, when uh, some White House official or congressperson i forget recently was like boasting about how the united states has had the biggest economic rebound since the start of the pandemic and i'm yeah. like yeah that's bad that's you uh, yeah. shouldn't have that it's <laughs> like, a real it's a real meme-shaped economy <laughs> yeah meme-shaped recovery that's yeah, well, meme-shaped yeah. recovery. <laughs> and, and in that but 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 john i mean come on you can't be that mad about how many cases we've had because haven't you heard in the same vein as our next meme don't worry it's mild Trademark. <laughs> this is a yeah. uh, uh, a graphic with uh, with death on it as well. That's uh, right. Scything through the population. Yeah, this is a, a another joint from from classic meme generator, the share zone. The motherfucking share zone. That's right. <laughs> yeah, coming out here with with the messaging from the Biden administration of "Don't worry, it's mild." I don't know the, the their misspellings they use in this are my favorite. <laughs> like stop coughing, which is just C O F F I N G, which honestly is probably how it should be spelled. Yeah, <laughs> well, or like go back to work, but T O O, like which has like a weird like rad '90s kid vibe a little bit for yeah. some reason. Like, and you're fucking up the supply chain, and news would never lie to you. Oh boy. <laughs> W O L D, and yeah. then another T O O where a T O is is correct. You know the thing yeah. about the news lying to you is uh, there's this one break room that I stock the machines in every day at my new job, and depending on who's in the break room, it'll be on a different news channel, but it's always on a news channel. And I've noticed CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC really do report covid very differently from each other but the conclusion is always the same which is that like yeah it's just gonna happen go to work uh and <laughs> like msnbc rings their hands about it and fox is like triumphantly celebrating but they're saying the same thing yeah speaking of saying the same thing our third meme is a step on rake meme where oh, we yeah. have the uh republicans thinking covid is fake and them stepping on the ring bad covid response and we uh, remember 2020 it's what the, a lot of the rhetoric was well now we've got the most progressive something something and uh, it is the <laughs> the skateboarder uh rake one where it's uh democrats believing in science but also believing in capitalism and then sick flip on the rake landing directly <laughs> to have it smash him in the face with record covid numbers yep because <laughs> because that's the thing it's like even with the most cynical calculations even like even from the capitalist point of view where they are making money off of all of our debts and it's incredibly horrifying like they are still blowing up the economy because you can't even if you try and force your workers back to work if everyone's sick you still have to shut shit down yeah it's just the insane death drive. It is. Yeah. Well, and it's like the aimlessness of capital, right? Like, because there's no one person in charge 
of all the capital of the United States or any right. one organization or anything. It's just a bunch of people operating on the logic of capital, which is like yep. incoherent and dangerous, <laughs> even without <laughs> a pandemic. But especially now, like it's 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 mind blowing because like. They're, even the cynical capitalist is shooting themselves in the foot by not taking care of their workers. And yeah. it's just like, well, they don't care. They're going to go fuck off to uh, Elon Musk's Hyperloop or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Our next meme is actually is specifically designed for Facebook because it's got uh, reactions in it. Like, you know, the like, heart, mm-hmm. wow, or angry reacts that are you're supposed to be the indications of how you should react to the post. And it's this little uh, pangolin or pangolin. like armadillo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's uh, with his hands folded, like very, you know, like a- asking nice. It says, excuse me, do you have a moment to talk about unionizing? And if you <laughs> like this status, you can hear him out. Hard it, you can sign a union card. Wow React, help him radicalize coworkers. And then if you angry react, you can rat him out to the boss. I swear to God, <laughs> if I see you angry reacting to this sweet <laughs> little boy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And then. Our last one here. Everybody's been going wild with the uh, the Seinfeld. Uh, what's going on in there? Meme format this week. I have seen some some true bangers from this format. All sorts of good ones. This one though, we're going with everyone's favorite with with yellow parenti. So you've got the, the whole thing has just got this this grainy. I like the fact that they 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 made it VHS. They put a VHS grain over it as well. Yeah, where it's really it's, really like continuity. The continuity on this meme is impeccable. Yeah, they brought the Seinfeld images down to the quality of yellow parenti, which I love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so you've got squinting Jerry up there like, "Kramer, what's going on in there?" And then it's a cut from the yellow parenti video and then cutting back to Kramer. They're overexploited, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> They're not poor. They've got so much wealth. <laughs> They're I love just the yellow print. Was it, was it you, Dan, or was it someone else in the Discord recently who was like, "Yeah, someone from Proles." Uh, actually, like fixed the parenti so that the color was oh, more yeah. well adjusted in it, but. I prefer to watch the yellow version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was somebody in another Discord server that I'm in had actually gone in and like used some editing tools to color correct it back to like not be just like <laughs> really highlighter yellow over everything. But I mean, yeah, there is some there is something charming about the just completely fucked up video quality of some of those original old printy videos. <laughs> And also, like, it, it, it gels well with uh, my memories of Seinfeld, which are that mostly I just always wanted to know what was going on in Kramer's apartment, because it seemed like the most yeah. interesting place yeah. in the show. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, we will uh, have to see you next time. And if you want more content, we have just been putting out some uh, histories of the repressive state apparatus. Uh, if you don't know what that is and or you want to learn more, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Throw us five dollars. Uh, you can hop in the discord either way and uh, come talk to us about whatever stories inspired you or which uh, picket lines you went out and supported. And you can also uh, get the link to the uh, to the hardship fund in the show notes here or other hardship funds in the discord. Uh Shoot us a review somewhere. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. 
Yellow Parenti is better. Solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity.